Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. Hey, let's give credit where credit is due. We do amazing things with hardscapes and plant materials. But you know, there's a fragrance in the air. Can you smell it? It's not Daphne. It's not lilac. It's kind of a poopy smell, like sarcococa. Or, or is that a bad comparison? I, I mean, I don't like, I don't like sarcococa. Maybe it's that weird greenhouse plant we read about that blooms every few years. No, it's not that. What I'm articulating badly is designers have a real problem that stinks up our reputation. So today, let's address the elephant in the room, the bull in the china shop, or what I might call in my own subtle way, the turd on the table. The fact that designers have a hell of a time with budgeting projects. The lack of a budget understanding leads to all kinds of embarrassment and acrimony. It costs a lot of time in revisions and recrimination, and it underscores the divisions we see most often between designers and contractors. Budgets and pricing for our work meet at the nexus of product, personnel, and production. Depending on your viewpoint, you see the issue from different angles. Budgeting is a real problem in our industry. You got to know this is true. You know, from the client's viewpoint, let's look at it that way. The client. The client might say, I don't know this stuff. That's why I'm hiring a professional. That's why you're here. But then again, what they're saying privately is, my spouse and I know what we want to spend on this. They're just not sharing it with you. Look at the contractor's perspective. The contractor might say, hey, these designers just don't know what stuff costs, how long this is going to take. But then again, they might be saying privately, we're booked out and hey, what the heck? Let's see if the client will bite on this number. The designer's orientation is really somewhat different. They might be thinking, it's not my job to tell the client what things cost, it's the contractor's job. That's why I'm sending it out to bid. But then again, what they might be saying to themselves privately is, you know, I was never really trained on anything related to budget and pricing. I learned other things in my academic career. Budgeting just becomes a difficult decision emotionally, personally, financially. If you think of it this way, it's the second greatest investment after a home that your client might make. It's where you might become a part-time counselor between two parties that are disagreeing about one thing or another. Usually one person is oriented toward the aesthetic decision. The other person is you know, more oriented toward the financial pragmatic decision. And those two people can switch roles at any moment. So get ready. You're going to become a part-time therapist and marriage counselor. And so you have to solve for both, really, to get the job together. It's somewhat of a completely subjective effort that's defined differently by any designer that approaches it. So how can you get to that decision? Let's talk about it. For me... I've been doing this for quite a while, and I like to set the stage early with the client. I know it's going to be a difficult conversation, but we have to get through it. 
I can't tell a contractor that. You're just going to use it all. That's what the client might say if I ask them, how much are you willing to invest in the work? And my answer to that is, you know what? I am. Because the more you can invest, the more I can do. In fact, you've got to rein me in a little bit. And so we want to be careful about how we talk about it. We want to use appropriate words. We don't want to use negative words when we're talking to the client. We don't want to use words like money, spend, cost, or price. Those really have negative connotations. And I think you can find your way around that and articulate it a little bit differently. Think about using positive words like investment, like value, like the effort or the budget or the scope of work. In order to get it together and arrive at a decision, it's important that you train yourself a bit if you're a designer. You need to establish a set of unit prices. You might get that from a contractor that you work with. You might get it from some industry standards. You might get it from networking with a peer that you respect. But it's important to look at the main things that you do. I call it the dozen things we do. And break that into its individual components, cubic yardage, tonnage, square footage, per each, lump sum, that type of thing, and come up with unit prices for those things that you do all the time. You want to set minimums for select items because you're not going to run out and get a teaspoon of soil. You're going to probably get two or three yards at a time. So you want to have minimums for, say, an amendment or for square footage on paving or for boulders that are going to be set so that the person's not driving all the way from Snohomish to Preston in our area and then coming back with a single rock and then the next day going and getting another. There needs to be a certain minimum that people are expected to stay within. Sometimes that amount will be put on the mutual agreement. So if there's any dispute, it's already defined in advance. So you want to set minimums for selected items, soils, plants, and hardscape items. The other thing is to utilize budget ranges. Sometimes you'll hear from a homeowner that they heard they need to use the 5% rule. That is the 5% of their home's value needs to be put outside. That's a bunch of horse hockey. So don't use that rule. But there is a good 5% rule to use, and that is when you're thinking about the design. It's important to put the framework of the equitability of the design into context for the client. What I'll usually tell them is that the design investment that you make shouldn't exceed 5 to 8% of the total budget for the job itself. That's not necessarily how we're going to be putting together the pricing, but it is a good way for us to be able to set a framework where we can say that the work is being proposed equitably for the client. You also need to understand that budgets can change over time. If someone's going to be living in their house for two years because they're working for Microsoft and then they're going to be on another contract, maybe they're just doing it for that equity of their investment and they need enjoyment right away. But if you have someone moving in with their family and they're going to live in the house for 30 years, they might take 20 years to finish the project. That means a plan is going to encompass a much greater period of time and can be done over many phases. So in that context, we'll put it to the client to give us a budget range that works for the long period of time and then also reflects a comfortable phase one. If you're selling a service such as contracting, there's a lot of complexity that might go into the budget and that's why it's important to set unit prices that you can understand. You also want to maintain a certain amount of flexibility so that you're not fully committed to an exactness to what you're quoting. Uh, you'll want to quote ranges for the work that you're going to do. Sometimes there's a wild difference between the minimum range 
and the uh, maximum range that you'll be talking about for various reasons. You might also want to know about margin and markup. Margin is the sales minus the cost of goods sold, and markup is the price spread between the cost to produce that good or service and its selling price. Again, you don't necessarily have to use these terms with a client, but you might want to know them for your own purposes when you're talking about how you're pricing your goods and services. You'll want to know your own production rates. How quickly do you do it? In my work, when I'm training design staff to come and work with me, I have compartmentalized the work into what I call the dozen things we do. And you take certain things like consultation, soils, irrigation, lighting, planting, hardscapes, stonework, all of those things are components of that dozen things. Each of those aspects of the work, facets of the work have a certain production rate. And that production rate is affected by the skill of the person putting it in, the distance to the job site, the availability and workability of the material, and things of that nature as well. But as a general rule, you can plug in a number for flagstone or for paving or for an irrigation zone of a certain size. If you're not sure about what you're going to be needing to note as a quote for a budget, uh, a quick hip shot method is to use what I call a three times method, which is that you take the cost of the item and you multiply it by three. That will give you uh, the benefit of having a number that you can plug in for the additional amount you might want to make on the product itself, and then another third again for the labor to put it in. So if you take a plant material item, for example, that's $2 uh, wholesale, and you uh, multiply it again to $4 retail, you'll be ostensibly making money for the plant on that plant material, and then multiply it again uh, in another third, then you, that would take care of your, your production and your labor to install it, perhaps. Uh, so that's a simple method to use, especially if you're thinking about a subcontractor or an outside contract for work that uh, you don't normally plug into your work. Oftentimes, you're also asked to plug in time and materials proposals for aspects of the work, such as drainage and things like that, that you can't fully predict. You don't want to undershoot it and quote it too low, but neither do you really want to quote it too high. So in a case like that, it's important to put together what we call a not to exceed number. I don't think any time and materials proposal should go out without a not to exceed number in fairness to both you and the client. You know, in that way, you might say, well, the drainage is going to be from here to there. And if we need to run more, we might need to run it out to the street, in which case then we're running another 50 feet at X per foot. I don't think in any event it's going to exceed this much of an investment for you, Mr. Jones. And that's how we would use a not to exceed number. You know, there's no reason we need to overstate issues around budget, but I do think that it is a key component with what we do that we don't do well. And a client, I think, has a reasonable expectation that their project is going to come in at a price that they can afford, that the investment that they make is going to be well spent, and that they're hiring someone who knows what they're doing around controlling and managing that investment. In the end, I don't think that the price in and of itself is the reason that a client is necessarily going to hire you. It really comes down to rapport with you, the ease of communication, your professionalism, your expertise, of course, all your bona fides and reviews and the company behind you and your portfolio and all those things. But really, it's about the ease of communication and how trustworthy you appear to be. 
In fact, I think you can actually price in about 20% more than what the client tells you in some cases. And in some cases, a client will hold back. In fact, I'll advise that they do. When they're talking to somebody who's doing contracting, I'll tell them, give me about 90% of what you're comfortable investing and let me work with that. And that way you'll have a little bit left over that we can use for those unanticipated extras. Or God forbid, you could save it and go to Hawaii. You know, that'll usually get a laugh and put you in a good position for when things do go south, which they do. We'll talk a little bit in another episode about contracts and pricing and how to set up hourly rates and that type of thing and the thoughts that go into that. But right now, we're just talking about budgeting, and it's really important that we get that aspect of the work down. When you're talking to a client about budget, one of the things that comes up quite often is the fact that the project is going over. And that can happen at the outset when a contractor's bid comes in higher than expected, or perhaps when you run your own numbers if you're doing your planning. So there are a number of things that you can do around that to help to alleviate it being a problem for the client. One thing is at the outset, tell the client that you're going to fixate on the budget as if it was your own home. That helps them to feel like there's an aspect of trust that's being developed and that you're looking at everything in detail and perhaps personally to resolve. The other is to establish trust by saying no, and that is to tell the client uh, if the opportunity arises and they want to do a certain thing that you're not in a position where you would advise that or you would be disinclined to offer that as a solution and the reason why. A good reason why is because it's going to take them over budget or it's something that they could perhaps do later at a similar investment and not have to put the money into that item now. It could be something like a gazebo or a water feature or lighting that they could put off until later. In that regard, look at the things that if you're a design build contractor that you do on a regular basis, we've found that we're able to gather an additional 15 to 20% average over the course of the year with jobs above budget for items that we can offer as options. And those options are frequently the same types of things. It might be a group of pots. It might be lighting, uh, typical things that fall out of a budget when it's starting to get shaved. Lighting can be done later. Pots can be done later. It might be statuary. Uh, it could be certain aspects of, uh, say, a raised garden or an art piece. It might be a, a additional push on the perennials, additional plant mix that might be done to take the plants over the top. What you might find is the client's willing to do 15 or 20% more on their project uh, as a design build contractor for you if you offer it as an option and they, make, they can make the choice later. It's kind of like adding the special sauce that's not included. So think about that. You want to consider the items that would fall out. And in that regard, when you're listing out your options, that might be a template that you use, and you are listing those things as a consideration of items that you're doing on a regular basis. So think of uh, all of the items that you do on a regular basis. Give them a general unit price. You can adjust it on any proposal that's going out. You want to be careful about how you are redefining your contractor relationships because you shouldn't be in a position, especially as a designer, to be sending your work out for just an open bid by a contractor without having shared some kind of budget framework and expectation for the client prior to the work going out for bid. And that's not to say that you're sharing that number with the contractor. That wouldn't be ethical. But you do want to have a budget framework to put the client in uh, informed 
method of thinking around how the job's going to come in. That is a range that it may come in. And it's important to be able to uh, characterize that for them. Your client might be able to hire certain people directly. Maybe they are hiring that contractor directly. Maybe they split off the electrical work or the plumbing work or some other aspect of the work where they hire that person directly and they're not being brought in as a subcontractor for a general contractor that's on the job. That might save them a bit of their investment if it's parsed out that way. So look at that and consider whether you are in a position where you're legally marking up or gathering margin on certain items that are going out because you might be a contractor that is subcontracting on your own or you might be uh, a designer that has uh, a business that allows you to provide, say, pots or something like that that you're providing as a separate item over and above the hardscape. You want to be really careful about referral fees. Referral fees for items that, uh, for, for persons that you are recommending to go to the job site, it's generally frowned upon to be receiving a referral fee uh, overall. And what can be done is it might be possible for you to add value to the client by picking up more of a management fee around the work as it's going in. And we'll talk about that in another episode coming up where we talk about uh, contracts and management fees and hourly rates around design. So, I think it is an idea to ask a contractor who's being referred by you to in turn be referred by you. That is, they can refer you on a project coming up and you might have that as a reasonable expectation on your part and you can state it outright. You want to have a scenario within which you can revise and resubmit the work. And sometimes it's problematic when you are budgeting uh, or not budgeting properly and the contractor's numbers come in and then that necessitates a revision on the overall effort and that revision then has to become a re resubmittal by you. That can be a problem. So you want to be careful about how you're putting that together and I, I would suggest that it's somehow included as part of your package. So the client's not paying extra for what is essentially perhaps your mistake. Remember to use minimums, have a process for addendas and change orders with your work, and you should be putting a package together that works overall. If you'll bear with me, I want to take a few minutes to talk about some issues I've had in my career around budgets. Um, it can always be a vexing problem, and it's really important that you develop your vocabulary around this so that you can have a clearly articulated discussion with a client about it. Years ago, I did a project for a famous baseball player. Uh, I was walking around in the backyard with the baseball player's wife, and she asked me how much I thought the effort would cost. We were working through a translator, and I said in my customary way, you might have a budget between $15,000 and $85,000. This is the difference between using your existing and basic materials and doing a more comprehensive project with more elegant materials, a water feature, pots, and a nice lighting system. That is a budget range. The translator frowned and turned to my client and he told her something. She blanched, she got really irritated and she lit into the translator with a tirade I of course could not understand. He turned to me and he said that she tells me that she's not gonna spend any more than 250,000, he said to me. And of course I said, what? He said, you know that your client here made over 25 million last year. Are you gonna tell him that he has a $15,000 project? I didn't tell her that. Get a grip on who you're talking to. With that, I shut up about the budget. So it's not always appropriate to be talking about it, but honestly, it's my kind of default method, so it's hard for me to shake it. I've had a few clients now where money really is no object. 
I have a client who uh, skis in the spring in the Italian Alps on Fridays and comes back on Sunday night. He raises Arabian horses. I have a client that sells millions of books a year. I have a client that's a lead guitarist with one of the Seattle's premier rock bands, and another has a Klaus Oldenburg in his yard and a Giacometti by his front door. Even so, I'll lean in on budgets with people like this. I think it's just in my DNA. They may be wealthy, but almost everyone wants to know that you're advocating for them and that you understand the cost of materials, production rates, and you have an understanding about their investment. So let's assume that our clients are mere mortals so that we can define our budget methods and work toward an understanding of where the client's investment needs to go.